Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is part two of two, the $5 billion breakaway that led to a $125 million acquisition deal. It's a conversation with Mark Sear and David Ho, managing partners of Evoke Advisors. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page of our website. And if you find the content in this series to be useful and know others who could benefit from it, please feel free to share it widely. last episode, I had a candid conversation with Mark Sear and David Ho, now managing partners of the RIA firm Evoke Advisors. Mark and David first made headlines back in 2008 when they left Merrill Lynch with $1.6 billion in assets to form their own RIA firm, Luminous Capital, in the midst of the financial crisis and when independence was certainly not a common choice. Then, in 2012, they made headlines again with some $5.5 billion in assets. They sold the firm to First Republic Bank for a whopping $125 million. Yet the story continues as the team grew its business to $17 billion and announced in 2019 that they'd leave First Republic to form a new RIA firm. It's a fantastic conversation that digs into the why, which Mark and David share was about removing the limitations around how to grow their business and serve their clients, essentially to create what they described as a new paradigm for wealthy families. I encourage you to listen to that episode if you haven't already, because it serves as the backstory to this episode. So today, we pick up where the story left off with their split from First Republic and building a new RIA firm. For sure, it's a very different world than the one the team first entered when they built Luminous. At that time, there wasn't the strong cottage industry of support to help breakaway advisors as there is now. So in this episode, Mark and David share what's different about building an RIA today, what's changed about their goals, the role inorganic growth plays in the vision for their firm, and what they learned throughout their journey. Let's get to it. Okay, so let's pivot now to leaving First Republic and forming Evoke Advisors. And again, two things happen there, separating from several of your partners and leaving First Republic and going independent again. Right. So, you know, in life, as you, as you develop in your career and, you know, your goals kind of get more, maybe they change a little bit, they get more solidified on what you want to do. And for me, I really wanted to build a great business and stay independent and just continue to just build. I felt the four years that I was at with, with Luminous Capital, the four years there that were before, before First Republic were the greatest four years of my career. And I just wanted to recapture that that feeling of of building something and you know not having to worry about 
what corporate wants us to do, you know, as opposed to what we think is best for our clients and just kind of build out that, that platform. And so the departure from our partners in, in Northern California, they're also doing great things. And, you know, they're good friends today. We still keep in touch with them. But there was just different goals. There were different goals of what each, how we want to do it in the style and different management styles and, and what have you. So, you know, there's, there was a, definitely a, a split because of those kind of just creative differences. Mark, would you describe it that way as well? Or how would you? Yeah, I mean, I think the key thing here is that we're so close with them. We talk to them a lot. We, we share ideas. It was no, there was no acrimony at all. I think we all agreed that strategically they had a different vision for where they wanted to go. By the way, they're in a very different market than our market. I think if you looked at their average client, their average client looks very different than our average client. They're right at the epicenter of technology and venture capital and things like that. And we have a much more, David, you and I have a much more diverse client base. So I think the way that David and I wanted to proceed was while we were together at First Republic different. Uh, those differences were there when we were working together at First Republic, but we were able to manage them. When the opportunity to start anew came, I think we all just looked at each other and said, you know, this is a chance to give each of us the freedom to drive on the road we want to drive on. And they were different. And so yeah, I cannot tell you how happy I am that Dave and I have the chance to merge with these other great teams and, and to create a, a vision and a business the way we have always wanted to. And I know if, if you talk to my ex-colleague, they would say the same thing about what they're doing. They're very happy. They're very pleased. They're feeling great about it. So again, you know, it was one of these things that many instances in life, you see these things go bad and we were able to manage a, a sort of a, a clean break where everybody came out ahead. And, and I think at this point, everybody's doing great. So, so many, one thing that uh, on that I, I will share with you, we, we as a group, all of us, uh, the partners of Loomis Capital that became, was acquired, there was a day in, in February, a couple of years ago, we were just at a corporate event where, you know, the kind of rah-rah event for the, for our, our segment of the bank. And mm -hmm. I remember the management saying, look, we're going to get this thing to 250, 300 billion over this amount of time in AUM. That's the goal. and all of us, you know, we, we sat down after that conference and we kind of said, guys, we're already there. We're already at almost a hundred billion dollars in assets. And the, the goal is to grow it to 250 to, you know, or more over time. And that's kind of was the triggering point for us where we realized that, you know, this is obviously, we knew it already, but this is really going to take on a life of its own as far as the size of the, of the firm is concerned. And, uh, you know, it was great for the, it's great for the bank and they're, they're, again, they have a great model. It wasn't necessarily the best thing for all of our clients from a size perspective. Yeah. And you wanted to be independent. I, I mean, I think what I'm hearing you say, the decision to leave First Republic wasn't at all an indictment of First Republic. So I think we'd all agree it's a wonderful firm, a firm with a good heart and a good soul. But the decision to leave was more about you wanting to be entrepreneurs and having total control, freedom and control again, something you couldn't do as employees of the bank. Much more eloquently spoken. Not at all. Okay. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. Many industry pundits looked at that move, leaving First Republic after having been acquired by them, and said, these guys are just doing this so they can flip the business one more time. It's a self-serving play. Were they right? No. <laughs> Again, uh, I think what Mark and I said to everybody when we launched Evoke Advisors is to say, everybody who's who's interested in, or in, in joining us on this venture, this is not a redo of Luminous Capital. This is going to be a place that we want to make really unique and special. 
I'd like to be 10, 15 years from now, people look back and say, if you're going to have your wealth managed, you should really consider Evoke Advisors. And that's my goal. I have some young kids, you know, who I, I hope would come into the business at some point. That'd be great. You know, I, maybe they would never will, but this is my, this is my last stop, as they say. Yeah. If I could just add to that, because I think it is one that both Dave and I should respond to, because I hate it when people say that, because it's just lazy thinking and it's just, I don't know, it's antagonistic. I mean, the reality is if they came and looked at what we've done, even in the year and three months, I mean, I can't imagine any other firms done more, right? We've merged with two other organizations. We've brought in a firm that created this um, unique ETF, RPAR. We have um, invested substantial amounts in new technology to help us manage portfolios more efficiently. Uh, we've deepened our research efforts significantly. We have really increased our bench in terms of alternatives. We've actually broadened our alternatives to do things like offering clients the ability to be limited partners, but get GP economics. So, so it's sort of a revolutionary new way of accessing the private equity market for clients. And so all of our impetus has been on improving our model and improving the client experience. That doesn't feel like anything we, you know, we're building it for sale. This idea of building it for sale is just, it's sort of um, foolish and demeaning. I mean, you know, this is certainly where I'm going to end my career. Dave and I were talking about this question and I think I, I made a note, you know, this, this is, I'll be in this business till David kicks me out, right? And this is <laughs> our passionate. We've always been passionate. If anybody looks at our moves along the way, a jaundiced eye could say they were economic decisions, but every decision we've made, it's been focused on the client experience from Goldman with house product to Merrill with broad product, from Merrill with broad product to becoming a registered investment advisor, to becoming a registered investment advisor at a bank because we could do lending and banking. When that didn't work out great, we went back and have now founded Evoke and we're broadening, broadening all the things we do well, like the private equity experience. So if somebody took the time, like you're doing, Mindy, to get to really know us and what our goals are, um, we're not about building something for sale. We're about trying to change the business model because we think that, frankly, the business of investing for affluent families, in fact, investing for many families, has been not as effective as it could have been over the many years for a bunch of different reasons. And, um, and we're trying to improve upon that. How did your clients feel to about a move from Goldman to Merrill, Merrill to Luminous, the RIA, Luminous to First Republic, First Republic to Evoke? I will tell you that in every instance, if you do things that are in the best interest of your clients, it's easy to do. I mean, that's what was my comment earlier about joining First Republic. Join First Republic if it's best for your clients. Don't do it if it's best for you, right? And I think every move we've made, every move, anybody who was an honest observer of what we've done has been focused on improving the client experience. I'm happy to sit down with anybody and talk about what I think the flaws in the industry are. And I have strong feelings in this area. And so we evaluate every day, what are we doing and how can we do it better? Not to make us more money, but how can we do it to make clients outcome better? Either we can service them better, or we can invest better, or we can find a way to save costs but all those things benefit the client. And if, if you go back and look at Luminous, we were the first firm to really think about doing alternative investments without an extra fee. We were one of the first firms to do an RA without a broker dealer attached to it. So, you know, all of these decisions along the way, if they were honest observers would say, wow, this has really been a client focused experience throughout our careers. And it will only be more client focused as we go further, because now we have Alex and Damien joining us and Daryl and uh, Andrew Palmer joining us who have been long stewards of, of, client relationships focused on what's best for clients. So now we have not just David and I, but there's six of us all rowing in the same direction. Fortunately or unfortunately, the devil's in the details, Mindy. And you really have to drill down into the platform. And we've had a number of very large 
clients recently join us who did exhaustive due diligence on our industry, our competitors, right? And and they come back to this model is more advantageous for them. And David, do you think it was because of Evoke specifically, Mark and David specifically, or because of the model that the RIA model, they felt the, the multifamily office model, if you will, they felt was a better model for them? I think that they, it's clearly what happens when clients do a lot of work and are, are very thoughtful. They first come to the conclusion, okay, I should be with an RIA and the reasons of conflict and what have you that we've talked about, we don't need to go through that again. So that's usually what we've experienced is that that's the first kind of screening process. Then it boils down to a handful of RIAs who are doing it kind of comparably to the way we do it, right? So um, so that's the next layer. And then from that layer, then it goes down to saying, okay, well, if you're all doing it the right way, honestly, in the in kind of not unconflicted way, what are now the true benefits for what you're offering versus what others are offering? So whether it be better alternatives or more interesting alternatives, maybe they can get the large platform alternatives from you know pretty much anywhere. So they're looking for the niche player. So it, it's kind of a, a the most uh, I think thoughtful family offices of ours have really kind of gone out and that peeled that onion and just kind of continually uh, peel that onion back and say, okay, at the end of the day, we kind of end up with you guys and maybe one or two others that do it very similar to us, and then it's a personality fit. So there's kind of that three layer process. So tell us a little bit about your goals and objectives for Evoke. Sure. Um, Evoke is David and I's opportunity to build out a client-focused wealth management platform that has the rigors of deep research and thoughtful thinking, but also is coming up with new investment opportunities that haven't really been thought of before. So this idea that I mentioned earlier of being able to offer clients the ability to be limited partners in a private equity fund but participate in some of the GP economics through seed funding. I think that's a pretty novel idea. Certainly at the hedge fund level, it's being done, but we're actually doing it in more um, sort of real estate type opportunities and loans secured by real estate. So sort of the sort of the safer private equity things that have been sort of the cornerstone of what we do. So Evoke gives us that opportunity to create a firm with longevity, a whole mentoring program for young people entering the business. We have strong feelings about what we think is appropriate in the business, we want to sort of back. I think one of the things that missed in our industry is effective planning. People lead with how great they are at investing, but aren't effective at helping people reach their goals. They say they do, but they don't do a good job and follow up properly. So we we want to really rethink the whole process of wealth management. And uh, this platform gives us the chance to do that. And part of the mergers we've done are really, again, not focused on just grabbing some assets, but grabbing key people that we've known for a long time and trust sort of round out this effort with us. And I think um, in the short time that we've been with Eris, um, that's Alex and Damien's firm that's now part of Evoke, we've been able to do some really interesting things around um, speaker series. We had uh, Jeremy Grantham speak to our clients directly yesterday for an hour. It was a couple of weeks ago. We had Bob Prince and Elliot, uh, Dave, who was it? Paul Singer. Paul Singer, Paul Singer from Elliot. So you know, those are hard things to get. Those are hard folks to get access to, and our clients are really liking that. Um, Eris is putting out Eris Insights pieces, which helps people understand about active versus passive management. So what's fun, and really this is the part I like the most, is this whole educational aspect. As opposed to just managing money for clients, we're spending a lot of interest, and we're going to put more effort into helping clients get more educated about the process and how the taxes really affect it. I mean, Alex wrote a great piece on when you subtract fees and taxes and behavioral biases, is it really possible to outperform 
or use our, our active managers really that worth the fee, right? And so that whole educational piece. So it's a lot of words, Mindy, but I, I think at the end of the day is, you know, we won't, we have taken a, you know, we have a long experience, right? 16 years as broker dealers for two firms, then a stint at uh, our own firm, then a stint at a bank. And I think Evoke gives us the canvas to create a firm that embodies all of the things are great about investment management, open architecture, non-biased advice, you know, access to all types of investments, not just the house products and many, many other things. And uh, it also is a great place for our younger employees to see a future where they can work up in the organization and have careers, which is fun too. And for me, Mindy, I'm going to keep it a little higher level uh, with the, you know, Mark did a great job of giving you the details. For me, again, back to Luminous, when we had that four-year run of being independent, this is, for me, the journey back on that track and where I was most happy in my career. And, you know, all of those times in our history of, of being in the industry, there's always this pressure of bringing more new assets in, bringing a new client in. Today, we have no marketing department, right? There's no marketing, quote unquote, effort. It's not that we don't want new clients. Certainly, we'd love to have good new clients because every year you end up sometimes, you know, as your client base, over time, it changes. There are people have passed away sometimes and there's always attrition, you know, assets get spent. So you need to keep the new client pipeline going. But the reality is we don't really have to focus on it here, right? What we're trying to do is, is as Mark said, we're trying to create a platform that is a stellar platform for all the services that our clients are looking for and, and angles and niches that we can provide. So we're just trying to constantly make it better. So what is where did the name Evoke come from? And give us some perspectives, just who are your clients and how many staff? We'll, I want to get to the acquisitions. We're going to jump to that next. But before we get there, just give us a little perspective on the firm. Let me handle the name, David, because I have to give you credit for it. Mindy, the truth is we had been banging our head against the wall to come up with a name that embodies what we're trying to accomplish. And we were really struggling. And David called me one day and said, how about Evoke? And I had literally just bought my wife the Evoke Range Rover car. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And he said, yeah, it's not spelled like the car. It's spelled uh, differently. And it means to recreate imaginatively. I've looked it up. And you know, really, Mark, that's what I see myself wanting to do is I want to go back to where we were, but I want to recreate it imaginatively. And it was, uh, and it was sort of, wouldn't you agree, David, stuck from that, from that phone call on? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's obviously going to be really hard to, to find names these days, but to kind of resonate with what you're trying to do. And, and when I saw that definition, I just, that, you know, it's a second definition in Merriam-Webster dictionary, but, but I just felt like that's it. We're trying to recreate this business in a really imaginatively way, you know, and so creatively. And so, so that's kind of where it came from. It's a little corny, but that's kind of where we, we came from. I like it. And so who are your clients and how much in assets under management now, just for perspective? So our clients are twofold. There's institutional clients and then there's high net, high net worth clients. On the institutional side, there's about $13 billion in assets. And then on the high net worth side, there's about five and change in assets, five and change billion. So typical clients are clients who have sold a business, entrepreneurs, they're very successful in a business. We have a lot of real estate entrepreneurs. Typical client is going to have, I think the median client has around 20 some odd million dollars in assets with us under management. Uh, obviously there's some that are smaller and some that are a lot larger. Okay. So let's skip now to the acquisitions. You just completed with a year and change in business and in the midst of a pandemic, I might add, 
you just completed two significant acquisitions that brings your assets to almost 20 billion. Tell us first about the acquisitions. Who are they? Who are the firms and what specific value did they do they bring to Evoke? Yeah, first of all, let me just say that uh, we look at it as a merger, right? Evoke and Eris merged together. And we really view those uh, folks, our partners uh, who've joined us from, from Eris as, as you know, equal partners, really. And so Eris is, stands for A-R-I-S. It stands for Advanced Research Investment Solutions and was founded by Alex Shahidi and Damien Bissirier. And Alex and uh, Mark and I have known each other for almost, I want to say 17, 16, 17 years now. Mm-hmm. We met at Merrill Lynch. Alex was working with a, a legendary advisor named John Eby at Merrill Lynch, and they were consulting to uh, institutions. They were providing the institutional consulting effort to a number of institutions. It's about 18 institutions today. And Alex and has always been, you know, for us, a, a thought leader partner. Even before we merged together, we would share ideas. We shared clients. We would go to each other's offices to meet with managers that were in town just to consolidate thought process. And when I, I talked to Alex, you know, before we left First Republic, I said, you know, we're probably going to do this because it's just kind of not where we want to be longer term. And he said, hey, well, you know, this is our chance to work together. And I was ecstatic that he mentioned it. And we, we basically, when we launched in May of last year, we, we put our offices together. We, we share office space and we did that for a year just to make sure that everybody's still, you know, kind of like dating before you get married. Everybody really wanted to do this. And in May of this year, we merged the firms together. And the second acquisition or merger? Yeah. So the second group, you know, Mark and I, when we started this, we kind of said, look, we can count on one hand how many groups in the country we'd actually consider partnering with. And in that one hand, Alex's team was certainly one of Alex and Damien's group is certainly one. And then on the hand, on that one hand, also that the, there was a, a gentleman who hired us at Goldman Sachs named Daryl Krasnoff that we've known for almost 30 years now, of course. And we felt felt as if there's ever a chance that we could work with Daryl again, we'd love to do that. And Daryl was, uh, you know, super smart, thoughtful, cared about his clients, and uh, just a great advisor and a great business person in this industry. And yeah, we didn't think about it after that. We, you know, we've been kind of working, and then. A few, a little while ago, you know, he reached out, we reached out and had a discussion and just made sense to have them join us. So that's happened uh, about a month and a half ago, I guess now, about a month. So as David mentioned, Damien had spent, you know, Alex, he had been, you know, spent his career in institutional consulting and then Damien came from Bridgewater. One of the things I'm most excited about is the way they've sort of brought sort of what I would consider to be proper portfolio balance. And educated, frankly, David and I, and I've been, you know, I'm not opposed to learning new things, even though I've been in this business a long time. And I think David and I, for a long time, have always been concerned about what I would consider equity centric portfolios, which I believe is what Wall Street sells. Wall Street sells that somehow the advisor always knows, like, I, you know, I think this is going to happen, and therefore the portfolio is tilted in this way, or I think that's going to happen, it's tilted another way. And you really think about it, if your if your goal is protecting wealth, you, you sort of don't want an advisor who's making a bet that they know what's going on, but basically. What you probably want is a portfolio that's properly constructed and properly balanced. And so Damien and Alex have brought this line of thinking to us where we've been really focused on improving the balance of our portfolios. And unfortunately, this year we did it at the right time. So, you know, adding certain securities that are non-correlative to equity securities was super helpful when the pandemic uh, hit and we had very good performance through that period. 
And so this new line of thinking has really broadened what David and I have always done in the liquid side of the market, and they have very deep intellect. So, so Alex and Damien are our co-CIOs, to, to give you an example. They're, they're our co-CIOs, and Mark and I both said, gosh, if we could ever get those guys to help us run the research effort. I mean, if you think about it, Mindy, Alex and Damien and their team of two or three other folks, uh, actually three, I guess now, along with our research people and our, our group together now, run that that process for us. I feel immensely more comfortable about our research effort because of that merger than I did before. When we started Evoke, Mark and I both thought, okay, how are we going to improve our research? We got to work on that. You know, we can go hire another really talented research person. We need one or two more. And what came to us was literally we're going to get two co-CIOs that we think are incredibly talented, very thoughtful people. And that filled that need for us, right? And they actually, for us, we, we had done a lot of private equity investing, alternative investing, and they actually really wanted more of that for their clients. So that's the synergy that happened in that relationship. I would say also, David, wouldn't you agree that you, know, you and I have had a few sort of on an ad hoc basis, endowment type relationship, foundation type relationships, but, but it hasn't sort of been the mainstay of what we do. It's sort of been sort of ancillary. And that's what they focus on. So from a business standpoint, it's nice that we have now people that can focus on that area when those opportunities present themselves. And of course, that synergistically has been great for us. And it's already, Mindy, born fruit. We've already brought in a couple of new relationships in that area that I don't know that David and I would have landed without them. Well, not only that, but, but also, Mindy, just to give you one little, again, detail, because of the asset size, okay, our challenge is not to go, not to get to 100 billion, right? Not to get to 50, 100 billion, because it's probably too big at that size, right? But if we can get a size enough where we say, okay, we, we just did a distressed debt fund recently, and we put collectively $360 million into that strategy, of which a couple hundred million came from institutional and balance came from high net worth. But when you have that size, and it's amongst you know, three different managers, when you have that size, and you're going into a billion or a billion and a half dollar fund, and you're giving them a hundred million. Our client fees effectively go down from one and a half and twenty percent of the profits above a certain hurdle rate, down to closer to even as low as a one percent or seventy-five basis points management fee. This is to the manager, and instead of twenty percent profit participation, it goes down to maybe seventeen and a half or fifteen percent profit participation. Yeah. So if you think about it, for all clients' benefit. At a certain point, it's just that when it gets too big, it kind of tips over. Yeah. Well, look, the best acquisitions or mergers are not just about one plus one equaling three in terms of taking a firm from X to Y in terms of assets, but that it's a synergistic move that where everybody benefits and the everybody is not just the business owners themselves, but the value add to clients. I want to go back to your days at Merrill for a minute and before that, Goldman. So what do you hear from your former Goldman and Merrill colleagues? We keep in touch with a lot of them. We're very close friends with a lot of them. And usually there's a competitive rivalry still, obviously. And I think a lot of people will, will poo-poo our you know, discussion here today to say it's not really valid in some ways. But we have a friendship with them and, and it's kind of a rivalry friendship discussions. But a lot of them have called us over the years. As you know, in the early years of First Republic, Mark and I were kind of the poster kids for talking to all the advisors who wanted to come over. So we spent a lot of time in the early years, 2012, 13, I guess it was 13 and 14, really meeting with other advisors who the firm was looking to acquire, to bring over. 
So a lot of the people who have joined over the years have or people that we knew from the industry, right? So a lot of them still today call us and say, hey, look, I'm, you know, I'm looking to make a move. I'm looking to, I'm thinking about this. And we give them our candid views, just like we're telling you here today. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Today, one of the most common practices at the big brokerage firms is to tie advisors up via their sunset programs like Merrill CTP or Career Transition Program. And I know it's been a while since you worked in that world, but what are your thoughts about succession planning as a wirehouse advisor? Um, and, and to be clear, the option to retire in place and monetize one's business without having to make a move can be appealing, especially for a senior advisor that has only a certain few years left to work or doesn't have a legacy that he feels excited about. So what do you think of those retire in place programs? And do you feel like you lost anything by losing the ability to participate in something like that? Yeah, I think that, um, first of all, I do know a little bit about them. I know some people who are going through those programs right now. Um, David and I never experienced one. We we weren't in the industry. We weren't in the broker-dealer side of the industry long enough, but I do know people who are going through them. And I guess my reaction is that if the advisor who's going through this program, and I'm I, sort of semi-retirement, I guess, for lack of a better word, has a strong team and a deep bench, and those people have been introduced to the clients so that the client experience is unchanged and the client knows that this is going on, I think that they're appropriate and probably work very well. I certainly, from the people I know that are going through them, um, know that they do a good and effective job of keeping advisors at the firm and keeping the advisor's relationships at the firm. So from that standpoint, I'm sure they're quite effective for the, for the broker dealer. But as long as the client has a good experience and gets transferred appropriately to the right people and the service level doesn't drop off, then, then I would imagine they're fine. My, my concern just would be that if the retiring or a person going through this program is not uh, prepared his team as thoughtfully and has not trained them as well and has not disclosed to the client that this is all happening, I just worry that sometimes the client experience can be harmed because the person who is being paid to sort of transition his business is potentially a little less focused and therefore the client experience might be either from a service level or from an investment management standing harmed in some way. So I guess I don't know that when those parties enter into those agreements, I've never asked if the clients are notified of that. I'm guessing they aren't notified, but, but my guess would be that I think as long as the person's forthright about what he's doing and has a deep team to help support the client relationships, they're probably great for everybody. And I, I would imagine like anything, if they're sort of hidden and done in a way that is only to benefit the advisor and not the client, then they're probably not as good. Um. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, you know, I think one of the points we talk about is, and you brought up a great one about, you know, how hard, what's the incentive for the senior advisor to really work hard and continue to do his best for clients. But one of the perspectives that we talk about a lot and we hear from a lot of advisors are these next-gen inheritors. They're buying a book of business that they don't ultimately own, and they really lose optionality during the life of the agreement because they are held and bound to the agreement for the life of it with little control over the mandates that the firm puts in place and how they own their business. Yeah. No, you think about it this way. There's four constituents, right? There's the client, there's the advisor. There's the person inheriting the book, and then there's the broker-dealer. And my guess would be from these programs that the broker-dealer comes out great. Um, the advisor likely comes out pretty good. And the only question would be, um, the point I raise is, is the client getting the same level of service and investment experience? And then, good point, Mindy, is the person who's inheriting the book being treated fairly as well? 
So Mindy, one thing on that, just, you know, again, <clears throat> I've never gone through it, so I can't speak but, but succinctly on it. But my thought would be, if you're an advisor at a, at a broker dealer, a big firm, and, you know, to go to, to First Republic or to go independent is a lot of work, right? Of course. And frankly, if you don't have, as we've discussed on this call, if you don't have the, the infrastructure to do it appropriately, you may not benefit from a move, right? It may be better to stay place, yep. stay put. I couldn't agree with you more. If you're staying put, then this is a great option for those people. Mark's yep. absolutely right. It depends on how it affects the clients at the end of the day. That's the most, that's the, again, always your North Star. You should ask, how is the client going to get affected positively or negative? Maybe it may be that those advisors are actually turning those clients over to better advisors, you know, yeah, or, or that, just, that, as, that just as competent, just as competent maybe. So it might be actually better for the clients. I don't know, but clients who are there should ask, yeah. right? Like, okay, who am I getting and who's the new person and, and really do the due diligence. And how about, I mean, you're only a year and change in, but what do you think your succession plans are as independent business owners again? So I feel like the succession plan is much, much easier now for our junior people. I don't want to call them junior. They're really, I mean, these are people who've been with us for now 15 years, 10 to 15 years. They're not junior. They're, they're our partners. They are the next generation. And uh, I hope that they will all kind of step up. And I know they are because they're doing a great job to, you know, I'm 54. Mark's 55, right, Mark? 56. I look 55, though, Dave. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would love to, Mindy, I would love to stay in this business for 20 more years, at least, I hope. You know, everybody says, ah, 75, you're not going to be in the business. I don't know. I mean, I, I look around me in the industry and, and people who love investing, which is what we love to do. Look at Warren Buffett. I'm no way in comparison to, to Warren Buffett, but just look at the scenes of enthusiasm he has for investing. And other, there are many people in the investment management industry who are in their 80s and 90s that I feel as though really just love investing and trying to find the next you know, interesting investment uh, idea or solution. So for me, I would love to continue to, to do this as long as my partners will have me number one and that I'm effective for my clients. Uh, that's my goal. Yeah. And you're having fun. Two more questions. This has been an incredibly fascinating conversation. We're recording this in the midst of the COVID crisis. I think we're seven months in now, although it feels like a lot longer than that. So let's talk about that for a bit. What impact has it had on your ability to grow, your thoughts about M&A going forward and client sensibilities? In my case, it's been... and. This has been the best year I've had in terms of developing new relationships. Um, and I tried to reflect on why that was. Um, I'm not sure if it's because I'm super excited and turned on about what we're doing. And I think it's great. And I'm, it, you know, the name evoked to recreate imaginatively. I'm really getting excited about recreating imaginatively. And I have a new lease on life kind of thing. So maybe my enthusiasm's higher. It might also be that I do think our product offering is different and unique. A lot of people want to hear what we're doing on the liquid side. Some of the things that we've added from having Alex and, and Damien join us from Eris have been, I think, compelling to talk to people about. And it might also be the COVID is keeping people trapped in their homes and they have more time to review their portfolio statements and see you know, what their performance really looks like. And our, you know, if people has more time, they might be willing to listen to an alternative viewpoint and, and do the work. So it might be any of the three, it might be a summation of the three, but it's certainly been a great year. And there's no question that... Um, COVID has not hampered my ability to meet new people and articulate a story. Zoom has been very helpful in that regard. Yeah. Also, if you think about it, um, we've done, you know, we, we founded Evoke June 1st, and here we are in the middle of October. 
and we've been able to do two significant mergers, right? And there weren't acquisitions, there were mergers, but we were able to do that. That's a lot of work. And we did a lot of that work, if you think about it, right through the pandemic. So I can't, again, maybe we're just lucky the industry we're in has not been that harmed by it. And the volatility in the market has allowed us to tell our story and it's compelling. So, you know, that was helpful as well. So, yeah, so, so far, you know, by the way, I'd love the virus to go away and have a vaccine and put all this behind us, but it hasn't impacted our ability to do what we want to do strategically or grow the firm. Yeah, that's amazing. And last question, with a bit of hindsight, what advice might you give to prospective breakaway advisors? I mean, there are so many advisors that are sitting within your old firms, Goldman and Merrill, at Morgan, at UBS, at regional firms all over the street. And look, who wouldn't want more freedom, flexibility, and control, which are the hallmarks of being independent. But as I think you said, David, not everyone has the entrepreneurial DNA. Not everyone has the courage or the forethought that you guys did to pull it off, nor do they want to. So what would you say to them? as these advisors sort of look at what you've done and what you're doing and what are some of the things you think they should be thinking about? I think at the end of the day, again, just what is best for your client? If you kind of look back and say, you know, how can I best serve my client? It may be that some advisors feel as though their firm does that and honestly feels that that feel that that is the right kind of venue for them and that's okay. So just again, you know, not to be a broken wheel, but I think if you look back and just kind of say, what's best for my client base, and that's probably where you should be. It isn't for everybody. It's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of nervous times as far as, you know, running a company and making the right decisions and worrying about all these different issues that we all worry about. But but I think if you just go back to how do you serve your clients best, then you'll figure out what's, what's, what the right platform is. Yeah. And Mark, what would you say? Any advice to those that are independent business owners like you? What would be your one best practice for them? I mean, it's a broken record, but you know, our North Star in this business is what serves the client. And if you really spend your energy trying to figure out how to make their portfolio better or their service at a higher level or their cost of doing business less expensive, if you just put all your energy into that, you will have the answers will come to you. I mean, again, you know, we talked about it that David and I have spent our careers looking at how we improve that process. If you, you know, David and I started picking stocks off the Goldman Sachs recommended list. I mean, that's how far we've come, right? Like two guys out of business school picking Intel or something, right? I mean, it, it seems crazy today. But if you look at all the decisions we've made, they've been focused on the client. And so if you're an independent business owner and you start from that place, I think all your decisions will end up being good. They may not be economically good in the short run, right? Investment is not cheap. But, um, but in the long run, I think you'll end up um, happier and better served. And that's really what we do this for. Love it. Guys, thank you so much. I mean, you're only a year and change in. And so I hope that you'll agree to come back as you move through Evoke and do more acquisitions and continue to grow and knock the cover off the ball. Thanks, Thanks Mindy. We appreciate your support of the industry. I really do. You've been a, done a great job and a great spokesperson. So we really appreciate yeah, it. For sure. Thank you. Mark and David shared insights into building an independent firm, not once, but twice, as well as being on both sides of the M&A table. And they still have a good runway ahead of them to blaze new trails. They shared many lessons for advisors in these two episodes, 
but there's one in particular that stands above them all, and it's always doing what's best for the client. I thank you for listening, and I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or by cell at 973-476-8578, or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And a special thanks to advisorhub.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.